Please turn with me to Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. Galatians 3, verse 1 is where we're going to begin. Uh, before I want to give you an illustration. I've I found that uh, there are a lot of great spiritual analogies in um, rock climbing. And so I want to uh, give you a little visual aid this morning. If you're unfamiliar with rock climbing, I'm going to give you a little orientation here. You'll notice first, uh, this guy here, he's smaller than the other guy. The reason is he's way down below, okay? He's down at the bottom, and he's holding the rope for his friend who is climbing. And the way it works is he's got a belay device that he can lock off the rope, and the rope is strung out over here to the right, and the rope comes up through the protective gear that's uh, in the, the face of the rock there, and it's attached to the guy who's climbing. Uh, second thing about this picture, though, that I want you to notice is this is the next piece of protection in the rock, and he hasn't clipped into that yet. He, that's up above him. So if he misses this hold or he slips off, he, he swings basically twice the distance to the next piece of protection below him, um, which can hurt if you come off wrong. Uh, but the third thing I want you to notice is his foot actually is not on the rock. Neither of his feet are on the rock. This is what's called a dynamic move, or since words are cooler when you uh, abbreviate them, it's a dyno. Right, And in a dyno, what you do is you, you've gotten to a point where you're stuck and you can't reach the next hold. And so you've got to, you work your feet up as high as you can get them and then you jump. Okay, so for just a moment, you're not holding on to anything on the rock. And you know, you see a picture of somebody doing it, you go, oh, you know, that looks kind of scary, whatever. But when you're doing it, that's scary. Because <laughs> you, know? you actually come off the rock for a second and if you don't hit it, you swing. And, you know, really it's a very safe sport, though, if you do it properly and correctly and, you know, and you've told your friend, hey, I'm about to dino, get ready, and I might miss this thing. Now, I think there's a great spiritual analogy in this. Um, the few times when I've gotten stuck and I've had to do a move like this, uh, sometimes I've, I've missed it. I haven't, I haven't stuck the move, and the reason is that I don't commit myself. Okay, if, you, if you're going to do a dynamic move, you've got to completely commit to the move. Because if you hold on at all to these, these holds that you've got below, you're not going to make it. Okay? Those are going to disrupt your ascent upward through the air. So you've got to completely let go of these if you want to keep moving upward, which is a perfect analogy for what Paul is talking about here in Galatians chapter 3. Paul is laying out two pathways of life. One is a pathway of confidence in self, just like the holds below. You got those under control. And then there's a pathway of confidence in Christ. And if you're going to move forward, if you're going to make progress, you've got to release confidence in self completely and cling to confidence in Christ. And what he's going to point out in Galatians chapter 3 is that this confidence in self is constantly getting in the way of confidence in Christ. We don't want to release our control. Or maybe we have fear. Can we trust God? Will the rope hold? Can I trust the man who's holding it at the bottom? There's all kinds of issues of trust confidence, pride. I really would like to remain in control. And so we try to cling to that. What Paul's going to say is confidence in Christ as a way of life and confidence in self as a way of life do not mix. They're irreconcilable. You've got to release the one if you're going to move on and make progress with Jesus Christ. And that's where he starts in Galatians chapter 3. And I hope as we read this passage, you'll pick up on Paul's passion and his frustration. Because these believers have begun well But now they're getting pulled off the pathway of Jesus Christ. 
And it's really frustrating to Paul. Look at chapter 3, verse 1. You foolish Galatians. You hear it? (laughs) You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then, does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Do you hear Paul's intensity? It's just one question after another. Are you so foolish? Who has bewitched you? What are you thinking? How did you receive the Spirit? Paul's coming straight after them because they have abandoned the way of confidence in Christ and put their confidence back in themselves. So he says, who has bewitched you? Literally, who cast a spell on you? Who cast a spell on you and pulled you away from Christ? You fools. Twice he calls them foolish people. And he's not knocking their intelligence. He's not knocking their education. Foolishness has to do with knowing truth and ignoring it. Jesus on the Emmaus Road turns to his disciples and he says, You foolish men, slow of heart, slow of mind, not believing. All that the prophets have revealed to you, all that I've taught you for these past three years, you have the truth, but you're turning away from it. Paul says, you Galatians, you're doing exactly the same thing. What is it that you're turning away from? Specifically, he says, who has bewitched you before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified? Paul says, unlike the spells that are cast upon you in secret, Jesus Christ was publicly and obviously proclaimed to you as one who has been crucified. We didn't hide this message from you. The idea is writing something on a, a billboard or a placard. You imagine the, you know, the guy walking around with the sandwich boards in front and behind and it says, Jesus Christ has been crucified, John three sixteen, And it says it front and behind. Paul says, look, this is what we did for you. We came into your town and we said, this is the gospel of Jesus Christ and we weren't embarrassed or ashamed about the cross. But now it seems that someone has come in and bewitched you to follow Satan's path, which is independence from Jesus Christ. And you're turning in shame from the cross. Why is that? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul says, We preach Christ crucified. To the Jews a stumbling block, to the Gentiles foolishness. So this God that you worship was stripped naked and hung on a cross That is the ultimate symbol of shame in our culture. And he's your God? The Jews heard this and they're saying, a Messiah who suffers? No, the Messiah conquers. He's king. And so they're suffering shame and embarrassment because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to keep your place here in Galatians and turn back with me to Acts chapter 13. Remember in Acts 13 and 14, we have a record of Paul's first missionary journey, which was probably his journey through the region of Galatia. Look in chapter 13, verse 44. It says, The next Sabbath, nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. So Paul has come in, and as is his habit, he goes into the synagogue first, and he preaches to Jews and Gentiles who are God-fearing. And he's uh, been very persuasive, so much so that the next week, 
almost the whole city comes and they want to hear what Paul has to say. Verse 45. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and they began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and they were blaspheming. So Paul moves on and he begins to focus on the Gentiles. He goes to another town. Chapter 14, he goes back into the synagogue. Chapter 14, verse 1. It says, In Iconium they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both Jews and Greeks. But the Jews who disbelieved stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Chapter 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, And having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So what happens on Paul's first missionary journey is that Jews begin to catch wind of what he's speaking. And out of jealousy and contempt for Jesus Christ, they begin to follow him from city to city to city. And they begin to persecute Paul and these new followers of Jesus Christ, both Jews and Greeks. And they're bringing shame upon the cross and they're blaspheming Jesus Christ. So now in the book of Galatians, what has happened is Jewish believers have come from Jerusalem and they're saying, look, you want to avoid all that persecution? All that you've got to do is downplay the cross because that's embarrassing. All that you've got to do is associate more closely again with Judaism and the Jews will ease up on you, and your Gentile friends will ease up on you. You can avoid all that persecution. And so they're turning from the cross of Christ because it's a symbol of shame and embarrassment. And Paul says, if you turn away from confidence in Christ, you cannot know the power of Jesus Christ. If you put your confidence back in yourself, you will not know the power of Jesus Christ in your life. Paul says in Romans chapter 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Have you ever felt tempted to be ashamed of the cross? There's pressure, even in this town. It may not be imprisonment or beating, but there's pressure. In an academic town, to stand up in your department, to stand up at your job, to stand up with your family and say, I believe in Jesus Christ. I believe that God created the universe and he created me for a relationship with him. I believe that I'm a sinner and I'm separated from God. I believe that Jesus Christ paid the debt for my sin to bring me back into a relationship with God. He died, he was buried, he rose from the dead. I believe all of that happened historically. It's true. I believe in those things. It's a lot easier in a town like this to just be a nice person. They just be good. And maybe hopefully people will kind of figure out that you're nice because you're a Christian. There is a pressure and a temptation. Maybe it's subtle, maybe it's overt in your life. But there is a pressure to turn away from the cross of Christ. And what Paul is saying is, you can't know the power of Jesus Christ in your life if you're ashamed of the cross. And you can't know the power of Christ in your life if you're clinging to your strength in yourself. Look with me at Galatians chapter 3. Verses 2 and 3. I gave you here another translation. This is from the Net Bible because I think it clearly lays out what Paul is trying to describe here, which is two pathways or two approaches to life. He says, The only thing I want to learn from you is this. Did you receive the Spirit 
by doing the works of the law or by believing what you heard? Are you so foolish, although you began with the Spirit, are you now trying to finish by human effort or by the flesh? You see what he's equating here is works of the law and human effort, or works of the law and flesh. So whenever we start talking about the law, I always get these questions, well, which of the law applies to us and which doesn't? Well, Paul's not at all concerned with that question. He's not talking about these certain laws apply and these sacrificial ceremonies, they don't apply. And he's not going through it. What he's talking about is two different ways of life. One way of life where you're confident in yourself and what you can accomplish. And one way of life where you're completely confident in Jesus Christ and you don't trust yourself. And he's saying every moment of every day, you pick a pathway. And if you choose one pathway, which is confidence in self, You may make great promises and vows to the Lord about what you're going to do, but eventually you're going to fail and you're going to feel frustrated. It's going to happen over and over and over again. Or if you relinquish that, those lower holds on which you have control, and you say, no, I'm just going to trust in Christ. I'm going to wake up this morning, I'm going to acknowledge, I can't make it through this day in a way that honors Jesus Christ in my own strength. So what he's talking about is just a, a basic and fundamental approach to life. And he's talking about both justification and sanctification. Okay? We've been really emphasizing justification the last couple of weeks, which means uh, meeting a standard. Okay? Righteousness is a standard. The standard in the Bible for righteousness is the very character and nature of God. And Paul says we all fall short of the glory or the very essence of God. We fall short of that, but we can be declared to meet that standard or declared righteous, justified, if we just believe. Because Christ met the standard and you can be in Christ. And so he says here, did you receive the Spirit by doing works of the law? How did you first enter into this relationship? Because you earned it? No. It was a gift. Although you began with the Spirit, and now he moves on to sanctification, are you now trying to finish by human effort? Or are you now growing in maturity in conformity to the image of Christ through your own human effort or literally through the flesh? He's saying, no, for both justification and spiritual growth or sanctification, the pathway is confidence in Christ, not confidence in yourself. I got a beautiful quote for you from Martin Luther that I think really summarizes this well. He said, God creates out of nothing. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. Isn't that rich? God creates out of nothing. That's God's way. He doesn't need us to bring something to the table to get him started. Therefore, until a man is nothing, God can make nothing out of him. And so we turn to the cross of Christ, and it's a very humbling thing, isn't it? It's a humbling thing every morning to wake up and say, I can't live in a way honoring to God on my own, I don't have the goods. But Jesus Christ lives in me and he can honor himself through me. And so I trust in Christ. It's very humbling if you've never begun a relationship with God through Jesus Christ to come to him and say, I can't earn God's favor. I haven't done enough good to offset my bad. I need Jesus Christ and I need him alone. But Paul says that is the way that you can know genuine and true power in your life. And so he turns now and he gives us an example. It's the example of Abraham. Turn back with me to Galatians chapter 3 and verse 6. Paul says, Even so Abraham believed God, 
and it was reckoned to him as righteousness, or he was declared to meet the standard. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are sons of Abraham. The scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, all the nations will be blessed in you. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with Abraham, the believer. Now, we understand Abraham as a, as a paradigm, right? He's the, he's the patriarch. He's the founder of uh, Jewish religion. But you need to understand some background here as well. Paul is arguing against the common teaching of his day. Because the common teaching of his day understood that Abraham had earned his righteousness. There's a long rabbinic history of looking at Abraham as a paradigm of righteousness by works. I'll give you a couple of illustrations. Uh, Jubilee 23, verse 10. And I was reminded by somebody in the first service, this is not in your Bible, okay? In case you started looking for it. It's in the Apocrypha. It says, For Abraham was perfect in all his deeds with the Lord, and well-pleasing in righteousness all the days of his life. So it was a righteousness based on Abraham's deeds. First Maccabees, Was not Abraham found faithful in temptation, and it was reckoned to him for righteousness, because he was faithful in temptation. Matter of fact, there were, there were certain rabbis that believed that Abraham had ten righteous acts. Okay? And they disagreed as to exactly what those ten righteous acts were, but there were, there were ten righteous acts. So when Israel broke the law, the Ten Commandments, they said what Moses was actually pleading with God was, please God, take the ten righteous acts of Abraham in place of Israel breaking the Ten Commandments. Because Abraham, through his works, earned Israel's righteousness. And what Paul is saying is, you're completely missing the point of the example of Abraham. He was declared righteous by faith, and by faith alone, apart from works of the law, apart from accomplishments of himself, apart from the act of circumcision. It was just through faith. Now, what does faith mean? We use the word faith uh, or at least the concept of it all the time in our daily lives, but when we get in a theological context, we, we kind of lose sight of the simple meaning of faith. Let me illustrate, okay? Here's my illustration. Um, let's say, for example, that um, Terry Helsher gave me this stool, okay? It's a really nice gift. Um, not the nicest I've received, but thanks, Terry. Uh, Terry tells me, Brian, this is a great stool, you can sit on the stool and it will hold you up. Trust me. Have faith in me. Is Terry a trustworthy source? Well, yeah, you know, he hasn't led me astray that much. So I, I, I listen to Terry and I go, you know, he is pretty trustworthy. And then I examine the stool and I look at it. It looks like, wow, you know, it's pretty, it looks pretty sturdy. It's glued together well. And um, I become convinced of the truth of what Terry has told me. And so I put my faith right here. I put my faith here. Now, what is holding me off the ground? It's simple. It's the stool, right? Is it my faith in the stool that's holding me off the ground? No, the stool is holding me off the ground, not my faith. The reason I'm driving this home is it's not the quantity of my faith or the quality of my faith. If either of those could even be measured, that's not what holds me off the ground. What holds me off the ground is the object of my faith. You are declared righteous because you have placed your faith in the right object. You may struggle and you may wrestle and doubt and the quality of your faith from moment to moment, you may say it's not that great, but have you put your faith in the right object? 
have you put it in Jesus Christ? Because God saves you through faith. And faith is becoming convinced that God is trustworthy. And in that sense, faith is it's passive in a sense, isn't it? Okay, I'm, I'm seeing evidence. Absolute proof? No. But I'm seeing evidence. I, I look around at all of creation. I see design. I see intelligence. I see goodness and morality. I see kindness and grace. I look at people and I see uh, intelligence and personality and all these things. I also see evil in contrast to good and righteousness. I begin to see evidence of the existence of a creator. I see evidence in the Bible, a, a historical record that says there was a man named Jesus Christ who died, who was buried, who rose from the dead and proclaimed that his death would pay for my sin. And I look at all this evidence, and it's not proof, but it's evidence. And based upon this evidence that God's Spirit uses, he convinces me that it's true. And I respond in faith. And for for some of you, you may look back and you can remember, in a sense, a moment of faith. Maybe some moment when uh, you prayed. You said, God, thank you for Jesus Christ. I believe in him. Some of you may not be able to to remember that moment of faith, maybe because uh, you were very young, or maybe it was just kind of a long process, and one day you just realized, I believe. Maybe you walked an aisle. But walking an aisle or praying a prayer isn't faith. Okay? It may be an expression outwardly or even inwardly of your faith, but those things don't save you. What saves you is God when you believe. And you may have prayed that prayer, but it was weeks or months or years earlier that you actually became convinced, and then you had a moment of self-awareness where you said, you know, yes, I I have believed, and I've believed for for quite some time. And if I wrestled and struggled and worked through a variety of issues in my personal life and intellectually about my faith, yeah, but I believe, I'm confident, I'm convinced that Jesus Christ is the Son of God who died for my sins. That's faith. I trust him. Look with me in Romans chapter 4 at Paul's description of Abraham's faith. Romans chapter 4, verse 18. Paul says, In hope against hope, Abraham believed, so that he might become a father of many nations, according to that which had been spoken, so shall your descendants be. That is, your descendants will be like the stars of the heavens. Why was it in hope against hope? Why was it difficult, in a sense, for Abraham to believe? Verse 19. Without becoming weak in faith, he contemplated his own body, now as good as dead since he was about 100 years old, in the deadness of Sarah's womb. He looked at some of the external circumstances surrounding God's call to believe and trust him, and he said, I don't see how this can happen, but I'm going to choose to believe anyway. Verse 20. Yet with respect to the promise of God... He did not waver in unbelief or disbelief, but he grew strong in faith, giving glory to God. And being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. That's a description of faith. Being fully assured that what God had promised, he was able also to perform. Did Abraham's faith suffer some difficult times? (laughs) It really did. It was up and down at times. What Paul is saying is, though, he chose not to disbelieve. He struggled at times, and there were times when Abraham jumped back into his circumstances, and he said, I'm going to trust in what I can work out instead of God. 
A couple weeks, we're going to talk about the incident with Hagar, where Abraham said, let's take over things. Let's work this out for ourselves. We we're going to put confidence back in self instead of confidence in what God can produce. Well, it didn't work out for him very well. What Paul is saying, though, is that Abraham went on a pathway, and this is what we looked at in James chapter 2 last week, where God was perfecting or maturing his faith, and he was doing it through testing and trial. And through that process, his faith became mature. So there is both an event or a moment of faith by which we are declared righteous. And you have a permanent relationship with God that cannot be taken away. And then there is a process of the maturing of faith. And in that process, we may say, today I'm trusting in myself. And we see that failure, and tomorrow we say, I trust just in Christ. And Paul is saying, these are just two basic pathways, two basic ways that you can live out your life. And he's going to give us four reasons why we should trust in Christ, why we should put our confidence in Christ and not in ourselves. Turn back with me to Galatians again, chapter 3. In verse 8. Chapter 3, verse 8. It says, The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, All the nations will be blessed in you. So what Paul is saying is, way back in Genesis 12 and Genesis 15, where God made this promise, all nations will be blessed in you, that that was actually the gospel. Of Jesus Christ. That was a declaration in, in a very veiled form that God would declare Gentiles righteous by faith. That's you and me. There are probably very few Jewish believers here this morning. Most of us are Gentile. We're non-Jewish people. What he's saying is Jesus Christ first earned our righteousness. Okay, Jesus Christ earned what we could not earn because he was absolutely and completely obedient and then made a sacrifice as a payment for sin. He earned our righteousness. He met the standard and he gives it to us as a gift. We can trust Jesus Christ. Second, he removed the curse of the law. Look at chapter 3 and verse 10. For as many as are of the works of the law are under a curse, for it is written... Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law to perform them. Now that no one is justified by the law before God is evident, for the righteous man shall live by faith. However, the law is not of faith. On the contrary, he who practices them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Now again, keep your place here in Galatians chapter 3 and turn all the way back to Deuteronomy chapter 27. I want us to look at this concept of cursing. Cursing basically means uh, a consequence for sin. Now, if you do this, then this will happen. It's a consequence that God has laid out. And he laid out for Israel blessings for obedience and cursings for disobedience. So if you look at chapter 27, verse 11. Okay, remember the setting is that the people were rescued out of Egypt. Um, they turned back from entering into the promised land and so because they didn't trust God. They didn't have faith that God was able to perform what he promised. So he takes that generation back in the wilderness for 40 years. They all die out and their children get to come into the promised land. And Moses reiterates the law in Deuteronomy, which Deuteronomy means in Greek literally the second law. Okay, so he's giving it to them a second time. 
And each generation was to renew their covenant through the Mosaic law every year. They would come and they would renew their commitment to obey God and they would accept the blessings for obedience and the cursings for disobedience. So this is a part of the prescription for this covenant renewal ceremony. 27 verse 11. Moses also charged the people on that day saying, when you cross the Jordan and you go into the promised land, these shall stand on Mount Gerizim, these tribes, to bless the people. The tribe of Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Joseph, and Benjamin. For the curse, these six tribes shall stand on Mount Ebal. Reuben, Gad, Asher, Zebulun, Dan, and Naphtali. The Levites shall then answer and say to all the men of Israel with a loud voice, and then he goes on and he lists out a whole bunch of curses. Verse 26 is kind of a summary. He says, Cursed is he who does not confirm the words of this law by doing them. And all the people said, Amen. (laughs) Which, gosh, you know, in hindsight, I wish they had said, No, we can't do it. Sorry, can you give us a better law? Can we get a better deal here? Can we get a, a, a new covenant, not the Mosaic covenant? But instead they said, Sure, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. We promise we're going to do it. And it's interesting, if you look at these blessings and cursings, For the cursings, he just goes on and on and on and on because he knows you're not going to be able to do it. But the people proclaimed, yes, all that the Lord has commanded, we will do. And they had hope because there was this sacrificial system that said, you know, if we fail, we can just go before the Lord and we can offer a sacrifice. But what they didn't fully understand was that the sacrificial system was temporary. Hebrews talks about this. We've, We've referred to it earlier that blood of bulls and goats can't take away human sin. It's not an appropriate sacrifice. God said, for a time I'll allow that, but you're just accumulating debt. You're accumulating the consequences or the curses. And so, as the writer of Hebrews tells us, there is actually a reminder of sins, not a removal of of the sins. When the high priest goes in and he makes the same sacrifice over and over and over again, there is this accumulated debt or cursing. And what the people needed was the removal of the curse, the transfer of the curse to another. There's a beautiful image of this transferring the curse. If you turn back a little further to Numbers chapter 21. In Numbers chapter 21, people have just come out of Egypt. They are still on their way toward the promised land, that first generation. They have not yet entered in. Chapter 21, verse 4, it says, Then they set out from Mount Hor by the way of the Red Sea to go around the land of Edom. So they're heading toward the promised land. And the people became impatient because of the journey. The people spoke against God and Moses. Why have you brought us up out of Egypt to die in the wilderness? For there is no food and no water, and we loathe this miserable food, this manna. We hate it. We hate it. Why'd you bring us out? Moses, you just want to kill us? Let's go back to Egypt. And this happened multiple times where they became frustrated with God's plan. They said, let's manage things ourselves. Let's appoint another leader. Let's go back to Egypt. There's food to eat there. This time God got frustrated. Verse 6, the Lord sent fiery serpents among the people and they bit the people so that many of Israel, the people of Israel died. So the people came to Moses and said, we have sinned because we have spoken against the Lord and you. Intercede with the Lord that he may remove the serpents from us. And Moses interceded for the people. Then the Lord said to Moses, Make a fiery serpent and set it on a standard. 
And it shall come about that everyone who is bitten, when he looks at it, he will live. And Moses made a bronze serpent, set it on a standard, and it came about that if a serpent bit any man, when he looked to the bronze serpent, he lived. That's a strange image, isn't it? Isn't it? Why, why a serpent? Why not something a little more positive? Okay. That's strange. A couple things I want you to notice here. Uh, the first is that this whole setup is outside of the sacrificial system. Because there was no sacrifice that God had outlined that would remove the debt of rebellion against God. There were, there's no sacrifice to cover over that. So this is outside of the sacrificial system. The other thing I want you to notice is they don't do any good works to remove this curse or this consequence of their sin. What do they do? They look. Okay, they just turn a direction. There's two million people and they, some of them may have been on the outskirts of camp So as they look in, they can't actually see the bronze serpent, but all that they have to do is just turn toward it. And the imagery seems to be that it's a serpent. It is a a symbol of the cursing itself. So they turn toward it, and when they see it, they see a reminder of their own sin and a reminder of the consequence of their own sin and a reminder that they have a debt for their own sin, and yet God has transferred that curse to another, because it is written, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. So there's actually a transference of the curse or the consequence for their sin. Jesus picks up on this image, John chapter 3, he says, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of Man be lifted up, so that whoever believes in him will have eternal life. To believe in him is to turn to him. And so I believe in him and I turn and what do I see? I see a symbol of the curse, right? I don't see a glorious symbol. And these believers in Galatia, they're being tempted to turn away because it's a symbol of shame. It's a a symbol of of conviction, of guilt. It's a symbol of, of, of humiliation. It's also the symbol that reminds us that we have a debt to pay that we couldn't pay, but it was transferred to another. It was transferred to Jesus Christ. So we should never be ashamed of the cross of Christ. Because in the cross of Christ, we have our victory because he overcame the shame and the suffering that we caused him. So we turn to the cross and we rejoice in the cross and we exalt in the cross And if we want to know the power of Jesus Christ in our lives on a day-to-day basis, we can't turn away from the cross. That's our source of power. So Paul says what Jesus Christ has done is he has removed the guilt of the curse because he became a curse for us. Now turn back again to Galatians chapter 3 verse 13. He says, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. Why? He did that so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, that's us, so that we would receive the promise of the Spirit through faith. Where was the Spirit promised to us? Variety of places, but one that I want you to look at is in John chapter 7. And verse 37. John 7, verse 37. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and he cried out saying, 
If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this Jesus spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. Why was the Spirit not given yet? Because Jesus hadn't removed the curse yet, the curse of the law. Once the curse of the law had been paid for, we're told in Acts chapter 2 in Peter's sermon that Jesus ascended on high. He was glorified. And because he had perfectly obeyed the Father, the Father said, you can now start a new covenant. And the sign of that new covenant will be the Spirit. Here is the gift of the Spirit. Give it to your people. So the Spirit couldn't be given. In the Old Testament, they didn't enjoy these ministries of the Spirit, of, of regeneration, of permanent indwelling, of sealing, until the day of redemption. They didn't enjoy that yet because the curse of the law was still abiding over them. But when Christ died on the cross and he was raised from the dead, the curse was removed. He was glorified and given the spirit to hand to us. And so now he hands on the spirit into our lives. And once you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you possess the spirit forever. So we don't sing Psalm 51 anymore. And we don't sing as David did, take not your Holy Spirit from me. Because once you belong to Jesus Christ, you belong to him forever, and the Spirit has sealed over you forever. You belong to Jesus Christ. You are secure. And so we trust Christ because he has given us of his Spirit. And he's given us of his Spirit, not just so that we would possess eternal life, but so that right now we would cling to Christ and we would see Christ changing us more and more into his image. Hey, look with me one last time in Galatians chapter 3 and verse 2. Paul says, this is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? So then does he who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you do it by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now notice the progression that he works through in in these four verses. He says first in verse 5, let's work backwards. He says, does he who provides you, literally he who lavishly outfits you with the Spirit, abundantly supplies you with the Spirit, does he do it by your works or because you believed what you heard? And why has he supplied his spirit to you? Verse 4. Because if you identify with Jesus Christ, you will suffer. Did you suffer in vain? Did you miss the point of your suffering? Did you miss the point of your suffering? Your suffering, he tells us in verse 3, was so that you would be perfected or matured or made into the image of Christ. You see the progression here? God gave you his spirit. Because he knows that every day you are going to be tested and tried. But his spirit is more than abundant to give you strength through those trials. But don't miss the point of those trials. Those trials are given to you to conform you to the image of Christ. But if we are like the nation of Israel and the trials come upon us and we go, and we get mad and angry at God, we're missing the point of the trial. Or if we say, let me take matters into my own hands, as Abraham did with Hagar, We miss the point of the trial, which is to teach us to cling to Christ and not cling to our own strength. 
And when we do that, that is what James was talking about last week, James chapter 2, faith is made mature or faith is perfected. And that's exactly what God is doing in your life every morning, every day. You wake up and things are going to face you, you're going to face things that you cannot go through in a way that honors Jesus Christ on your own. You cannot. And so every morning, every day, you're going to get up and you need to make a decision. Will I choose this pathway of confidence in Christ or confidence in myself? Usually we don't even think about it, which means the default is confidence in myself. And the result is frustration and discouragement. And then sometimes, hopefully by lunchtime, we figure out we just can't live this day well. And we go, oh yeah, I need to trust in Christ. And when I trust in Christ, he changes my whole perspective on everything that's happening to me throughout the day. And instead of going, God, I embrace it. And I say, okay, I understand what James was talking about. Trials produce endurance, and when endurance has its perfect result, I become more mature and I become wise, and God transforms my character to be like him. And so what I want to challenge you with this morning as we leave is just one simple decision, and that is, what's the pathway you're going to pick for the rest of today? I'm not asking you what's the pathway you're you're going to say, I'm going to promise to do this pathway and trust Christ for the rest of my life. Just pick for this afternoon. Because what happens to us is we're so forgetful. We really are just like Israel. You know, we wander around in the wilderness for a while, and it's boring or tempting or frustrating or whatever, and we turn back to self. We're just constantly under that temptation. And so every moment of every day, we're needing, we need to choose a pathway. And then when we, we string that choice together over many days and weeks and months and years, God progressively transforms our character to make us more and more like Christ. And so today, the decision in front of us is just this. Will you choose to be confident in Christ or confident in yourself? And as we get into Galatians 5, we're going to talk a lot more specifically about what does that mean on a day-to-day basis. But this morning, I want us just to go before the Lord and say, Lord, I've chosen a path and I, I trust in Christ. Let's just take a few moments and then let me close us in prayer. Father, we confess that it is at the very root of our nature because of pride or fear, to want to put confidence in ourself. We acknowledge that Christ is more than able. We believe in him, we trust in him. He is more than able to bring us into a relationship with you and to move us on to maturity. Father, he's able to accomplish things that we cannot accomplish through our own strength. And so we renew our commitment this day to trust in Christ. Father, I thank you for Jesus. I thank you for all that he has accomplished by paying for our sins. And I thank you for all that he is accomplishing by giving us of his spirit to transform us. And I pray, Father, that you would protect this group of believers from Satan's attack and from from his deceit throughout this week. That we would walk confidently in Jesus Christ. It's in his powerful name we pray. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.